and the British pretty much just simply followed them, swallowing up newly settled areas in turn, you know, gradually extending their control outward from the Cape along the coast to the east, and eventually annexing the whole region of Natal where the Boers had tried to go in 1843. Oh. So the Boers just, or the British just waited till the Boers did all the hard work, and then they just came and been like, this is part of our empire now. <laughs> Welcome to We Talk About Dead People, a podcast where we talk about dead people. I'm your host, Aaron C., and I'm here with my good friend and co-host, George. Say hi, George. I forgot to write a line for myself here, so I guess we'll just leave it at hi. (laughs) We hope to keep our listeners entertained and interested while we break down various members of the odd and exciting family that is humanity. The way this works is that George and I will do our amateurish best to give a basic account of the major events in the life of a now-dead person, and give a fairly accurate depiction of their individual character, which is harder to do, but we're going to try anyway. So, George, who do we have this week? Today, we are doing our sacred duty and fulfilling a listener request by covering the Boer Wars and the character of Denise Reitz. And our thanks to Dylan LaRue, a champion among men, who made this request. That's exactly right. Well, I gotta say, though, that sounds a little boring. <laughs> boring. I knew, I knew this was gonna be a nightmare. <laughs> Look, I don't have a lot to work with here, but there aren't that many words that sound like bore. You know what? I, I'll give you a pass on this one. I shall, for the moment, ignore your iniquities. Oh, thank you, Father. How very gracious. Oh, okay, so are you ready to head down to the history lab, you, uh, papist scum? <laughs> Yes, we can't put it off any longer. Let's do it. Here we go. In a world where the British Empire absolutely sucks, That's every world. small countries aren't allowed to do their own thing. And if you try to fight back, your family might just end up in a concentration camp. Some hardy farmers with harder-to-pronounce names decided they didn't want to be Britain's next victim. Join us for the tale of the Boers and their fight against the Empire we have all grown to know very well and hate very strongly. <laughs> that was good. Man, we can't, we're, we can't roll hard enough on the <laughs> British Empire, kid. Okay. <clears throat> How many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, George, if you were going to travel back in time to bring one meme to someone in the past, what meme would you bring, and to who, who would you bring it? I will not say whom. <laughs> but whom is grammatically correct. That's literally the English, you know, dative case. Ah. We... I'm sorry, I'm using words you don't know again. Yeah, you're overestimating my abilities here. <laughs> <laughs> Misoverestimating. <laughs> anyway, um, that's a great question, Aaron. Like, whoever wrote that question, wow. Anyway, um, I would probably, I feel like, bring some sort of, I'd want a meme that could be easily reproduced in whatever culture I bestow it upon. And so, like, picture memes wouldn't work as well because they'd have to, like, carve them in stone or something, and it's hard to, you know, send a meme when you literally have to carve it onto a rock. So, like, one of the word (laughs) memes I think would be good. So I was thinking I'd probably, like, bring the adjective cringe 
to like Charlemagne <laughs> or something and convince him to start using it. So we can have these historical documents where Charlemagne declares that the Saxons are cringe. <laughs> what do you that's, think? Uh, I think that's good. You know, I, I gotta say that's, that's, that's pretty damn good. Um, you know, for me, I'm, I'm a simpler man. I think I'd just send a piano cat back to like, I don't know, Bach and let him, let him do something. with that. Ah, yes. The, the duo that the world needs. Yes. Bach and piano cat. Mm. And speaking of duos, Oh, wow, that was a good segue. Mm. Nice. So, yeah, um, what Aaron's referring to is that uh, the format is going to be a little bit unorthodox uh, in that oh, this will be a two-part episode, but it's not going to be sort of the one story that's just chopped into two parts that are more or less the same thing, just the first half and the second half. Instead, because we figured there's a lot of background that people aren't necessarily going to know about the Boer Wars and the settlement of South Africa and all that, that this episode is going to be a little bit broader, more historical, and given the family background for our hero, Denise Wrights. Um, and then next up, Wrights, sorry, I knew I'd mess it up. Wrights, <laughs> Denise Wrights. Sorry, Dutch, not my thing. But anyway, and then the next episode, once we've sort of gotten his his background and the political background, which is super important, and fresh in everybody's mind, we're then going to launch into a more narrative-driven <laughs> account of his exploits in wars and politics and law and all the other things he did because this guy did a lot so bear with us this episode it's going to be fun there's going to be some war but next episode is going to be a lot of war and a lot of fun (laughs) okay that sounds that sounds that sounds good to me um i will also i would also like to note we are recording later than usual and i of course uh I need my bedtime, so if I start to sound a little sleepy halfway through this, I hope I hope that uh, that uh, doesn't affect the quality of the episode. But I will say, I do have here with me a little bit of mead, which acts as a stimulant in my weird brain. So I'm hoping that will help me carry through and uh, refresh refresh my uh, performative abilities as we go along. So with all that, oh, and this is not the drunk episode, by the way. We'll be doing that one at some at a later date. We might have to do it after the end of this series. <laughs> all right, computer, please bring up Danae's rates. Well, you know the drill by this point, Aaron. So here is our photo, and fire away with that physical description. Well, I got first thing you notice when you look at this picture of Mr. Rates is. He has a very, very large hat. He does um, have a, quite an impressive hat, I have to say. It, it doesn't look like a, a sombrero or anything. It look, just looks like an oversized fedora. It's uh, what's technically called a slouch hat. Oh, <laughs> so it has a name. <laughs> uh, yeah, so A name that also... does, does sound oddly fitting for an oversized fedora, though, a slouch hat. Yeah, that's that's about right. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's like Indiana Jones's hat, but way the hell bigger. Um, and beneath this hat, you have the stern, determined face of a man who looks like he's killed a lot of people, but also like he just he looks like he thinks about the stuff that goes on in the world very hard. Like he's got this grave expression of like, huh? Hmm. I wonder why that is that way. He's also, um, do you want, do you want to guess his age in this photo? Approximately, I don't remember the exact year. Oh, I don't know, 25? 
probably younger, yeah. He's probably around 20 to 21 in this picture. How about that? He's got a pretty old-looking demeanor. He definitely does have that. So, around his neck, he's got a bandolier of what look like cartridges, um, rifle cartridges. And he's wearing a jacket and holding a rifle. <laughs> uh... That's about it. There's some. There's just something about that. Them eyes, though. That look is very interesting to me. It implies some some sort of, you know, like almost masculine depth. I don't know how else to put it. Really. That's. A, I kind of like the pose because it's like a really casual pose. Like, I'm pretty sure I have a photo in that pose for like my sixth grade school picture. <laughs> like you know what he's where he's kind of it's at a slight angle and he's sort of leaning a little bit towards the camera and like his mm-hmm. elbows up on like a table or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, he looks he Ugh. looks very uh it's like, almost okay. cowboy. Okay, Johnny, you can have two hours on the Xbox One if you sit still for school photos. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Well, I I think that that'll probably do it. So um. Shall we get into our story, then? We should, we should indeed. So, we're going to start off with... Well, why don't I ask you, Aaron, how do I start pretty much every episode I do? Uh, I usually put my earbuds in around now, so I don't actually know. But I'm going to guess we're going to start with a little context. Wrong. We're going to start with a lot of context. Oh, god damn it. Okay. Because <laughs> then, yes, context is what I do, and today is no different. Since I figure most people don't really have a lot of just background knowledge sitting around about South Africa or the Boers, I wanted to start by making sure we're all on the right page to follow and appreciate our story. I'll just say my experience, my knowledge of South Africa is, is limited to that weird movie about the aliens. That's about all I know. Fair. Fair. D- District 8? Nine. District 9. 9. That's right. Mm. District 9. Mm. Three three. Interesting. Suspicious. Uh, what? Oh, ho, oh, oh, ho, don't even get me. <laughs> Just kidding. All so, right. Uh, anyway, anyway, uh, the background for, uh, for this particular story starts a little bit earlier than you might think. All the way back in 1602. Oh, a blessed year. Was it, though? No, I'm making a joke. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. Which, uh, anyway, 1602 is when the Dutch Republic chartered the Dutch East India Company, um, which is actually only three words in Dutch, not four, but it's the Dutch East India Company is what we call it in English. I can't pronounce what its Dutch title actually is. Um, And I'm just not even going to embarrass myself by trying because it would be sad. Anyway, (laughs) since, uh, since trade with India and other faraway places was picking up a lot as the Portuguese and Spanish empires kind of shit the bed. The British and Dutch were moving in on what had formerly been sort of their turf and getting a lot of that sweet, sweet commerce going. And uh, the Dutch wanted to make sure that the newly founded, i.e. literally two years before in 1600, British East India Company didn't get free reign over the eastern trade routes. They wanted to get their slice of the whatever Dutch people eat. Uh, I believe it's just... um, Shoes? Wooden uh, shoes? Is that what they eat? (laughs) The Dutch eat wooden (laughs) shoes. What are the Dutch? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, Okay, so they're they're really um, putting themselves in a dangerous position here by trying to compete with the uh, British East India Company. I would wager... Uh, it uh, it does uh, it does create some problems. You you are correct about that one. And oh, so wow. this uh this Dutch yes, 
Who could have guessed? <laughs> I know. The British creating problems? What <laughs> alternate timeline is this? I would like to emphasize the, the British royals and the, and the greedy people. <laughs> I would like to speak to the, the manager of the British Empire, please. <laughs> Can anyway, I speak to the CEO of Britain. <laughs> the uh, the old Dutch East India Company ran pretty much like the British East India Company did, sort of a weird state in its own right with its own military power and areas where it was the legal authority and literally was the state and you know weird stuff like that. The stuff that made Josiah Harlan decide to move to Afghanistan back in that one episode. Uh, but that's not what we're talking about today. About how much those companies suck. But they do, just keep that in mind. Yes. So, there was a little accident that starts our story. So many mm. great stories start that way. Mm. In 1652, a ship of the Dutch East India Company on its way to India to pick up cricket bats or something, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> shipwrecked off the coast of what is now South Africa, and a number of employees of the company ended up stuck there on the Cape of Good Hope for several months while they waited for someone to come pick them up and take them home. And during that time, they traded for supplies with some of the nomadic inhabitants, and, more importantly, they planted gardens, which they found did very well, since the climate and the soil were actually very good for agriculture. Mm. Yeah, so uh, Alexander Selkirk, but a larger scale. Yeah, and so, yeah, they're like, you know, we're stuck here, but it could be a lot worse. Like, this is actually a pretty okay place. Um... And when they finally were picked up, they obviously reported back to the company what a nice place it was. So, in 1652, at the end of the year, the Dutch East India Company decided to establish a travel station on the Cape to serve the needs of the ships passing by. And it's really oh, nice. funny, actually, because they, the Dutch, and other European traders had actually been sailing this route right by the Cape of Good Hope for about 150 years before anyone decided it might be nice to have, you know, sort of a halfway stop, truck stop, gas station kind of deal where you could stop for bathroom breaks and to stock up on White Monster and Skittles. Like, I don't know how no one thought of this earlier. Literally 150 years going by this really nice little cape you have to sail right around, and nobody thought, you know what we need there? A Wawa. <laughs> well, for real, I don't know. Like, maybe they just got, they just got, uh... As the years, the hard years went on, they just, like, started to realize, like, ah, oh, this journey's really hard, like, maybe it's, what we... It's really freaking long, like, it <laughs> takes months. <laughs> and somebody was finally like, oh, like, it took a little, it took an actual shipwreck to create anything like that. Interesting. Yeah, so, that's what they did. <laughs> they, uh, they put a little little settlement right there on the Cape, and the settlement grew quite quickly because it was a convenient spot, so lots of ships, you know, wanted to stop there and resupply and buy stuff and check their email and whatnot. And it also became a retirement spot for a lot of the employees of the Dutch East India Company who had an arrangement where they could settle down to farm land there after they were tired of sailing around the world all the time. They sort of had a built-in retirement thing where they could go live there after they were done sailing. And That's so it's nice. growing, growing, growing quite rapidly. And this is pretty easy to do because the entire region was very, very sparsely populated 
before that. The tribes in the area were very small and they were nomadic. They just grazed animals, you know, in herds on the plains. They didn't really have villages. And so just they occasionally passed through. There weren't any permanent settlements. And it's a very, very low population in the whole region. Um, so there's really no one there they have to compete with to, you know, start farming. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yep, yep. Uh -oh. Eventually, um, you did get some conflict between the Dutch settlers and those nomadic um, native pastoralists because areas that they had been used to passing through with their herds, you know, one year you pass through and then the next year you try to pass through the same area and you find out that it's a farm now for some weird Dutch person whose name you can't pronounce. <laughs> but since the populations... Suck. Yeah, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> since the populations were spread out a lot and still fairly small overall, it never escalated to, like, real full-scale, you know, like, war between the Dutch and these tribes. It was mostly just intermittent raiding and, even more than that, cattle stealing between ah. groups. Um, You know, the the... the native pastoralists, and then the Dutch farmers would steal each other's cows. It was stuff like that, you know, occasional little little raids, but it was never like a real full-scale war between the two. And eventually, Dutch officials from the company negotiated with those natives to officially purchase the rights to farm these lands from them, so then there were, you know, wouldn't be any more issues right there. Oh, that's good. Well, <clears throat> so what did that, did you look into, like, what that negotiation looked like? I didn't look a lot into it, but it seems to have been actually like fair. You know, it wasn't like a, a force thing. It was pretty satisfactory to everyone because we're still talking about just right along the tip of the coast, like a tiny amount of land overall. And these, you know, pastoralist tribes are moving over huge areas. So it really isn't like a huge deal for them if there's a little area they can no longer use right along the sure. coast, because these are just huge inland plains and hills countryside that's all pretty good for this kind of stuff and so they can just not you know go through that area anymore and there's plenty of other areas so it seems like it was a pretty like low-key thing it wasn't like a huge deal for anyone gotcha okay yeah. and it's funny because some dutch also decided to actually adopt the nomadic pastoral lifestyles themselves and instead of just cities staying in one place and farming they actually moved inland with herds of animals and coexisted in the area outside of Dutch control with the various tribes. And you'd find, you know, they would be in alliance with some tribes when those tribes were at war with other tribes. And you just had, like, Indian tribes, and then you had, like, these Dutch tribes. <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah, because they uh, were just like, yeah, that looks cool, actually, just wandering around with the cows. Like, let's do that. Look, <laughs> That looks better than, like, hacking the earth with a hoe for, you know, seven days a week. <laughs> it's... Let's just go around and hunt with the boys and then have barbecue every night. Yeah, no, and this um, yeah, this actually lasted for hundreds of years, really, until, like, almost into the 20th century, you still had these nomadic Dutch people. Wow, I never knew cool. that. Yep. And so um, the Dutch who dispersed through the region became known as the Boers, which is literally just the Dutch word for farmer, but it began to specifically mean these settlers who had gone beyond the coastal centers and gone further inland. Um, and so together with the Dutch who remained right on the coast in the coastal company colony, uh, they're called the Cape Dutch because they're on the Cape of Good Hope. Together, those two groups, the, the Boers and the Cape Dutch, are called the Afrikaners. Ah, okay, finally a word I recognize. <laughs> you haven't recognized any of the no, words? No, it's a joke. God. 
What does the mean? Sometimes I think you really think I'm like the stupidest person, you know? And I know I'm right about that. Oh, trust me. Trust me. You're, you're f far from top of the list. <laughs> That's a mistake. Has to be. Alright, sorry, sorry. Carry anyway, on, carry on. Um, yeah, Aaron, enough <laughs> self-deprecation. Okay. Yeah, you're so right. So, the, um, the next few centuries... Um, saw the settled area continue to grow and expand as, you know, more settlement came, so more farming. And it was a good farming area, as I said, it was a nice climate, but the residents frequently ended up in conflict with their boss, the Dutch East India Company, which still held extremely wide-ranging powers over this region since it was technically company property. Right. And most mm. of the inhabitants were still technically employees of the company who, you know, had to do whatever they were ordered to, more or less, or they could be, you know, kicked out of the company and thus kicked out of the whole continent. Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's bad. Sometimes people who were being employed by the company were endowed with the right of being free burgers. Ooh, <laughs> sign me right up. <laughs> Can I have a free burger? <laughs> but anyway, and that's just free townspeople is what that means. And so that is sort of the status of you're no longer an employee. You just you can live here, though. But it sounds great. But nevertheless, the company and this is just very nasty. They retained the legal power to compel them to return into full employment whenever they deemed it would be necessary. That's terrible. That's so like, it's like congratulations. You've worked for years. You now have the right to just stay here and not work for us. But anytime you we want you to, you still have to work for us. Ah, uh, the plight of the free burger. <laughs> exactly that. The untold story. The plight of the free burger. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah. Also, a word I recognize. <laughs> yeah, it kind of sucks to be honest. Like it does not sound great. And yeah, so, yeah I mean, this, all jokes aside, that's a that's that's a shitty deal. Yeah, because it's mm -hmm. literally this entire settled all the settlement here in this entire part of the continent is technically under the authority of this one company, and so they there's nothing you can do really unless you literally just like, well, I'm going to be a nomad now and just go far enough inland with your herds that they're sure. not going to find you. Sure, sure, that sucks, man. Yeah, not not fun. So anyway, yeah, this this particular thing, this right to force people into servitude if they happen to, you know, you know, maybe piss someone off, like maybe make the governor mad or offend some important official. Boom. Free burger status gone. Back to being employee. And back to being just a regular burger. <laughs> and this is especially bad. Listen to this. So okay. this right that the company had did not only could be exercised on the individuals themselves who had been employees and then received the free burger status, but it was also applicable to their children down the line. So it's like, well, your grandfather was an employee, and so now I can force you to be an employee if I want you to. That's awful. About like that is that is some amazing capitalist bullshit. Hereditary <laughs> wage slave status. <laughs> oh God. Oh. Oh, God, I hope, I hope Jeff right. Bezos doesn't listen to this podcast or we're going to see this rolled out by Amazon. Who? Jeff Bezos? Oh, God, no. <laughs> They're literally going to have, like, family centers in the warehouses where, like, you could give birth to a child who's then immediately, like, raised by Amazon as an employee from the moment they can walk. 
<laughs> You'll just be called from then on Amazons. That would be a uh, that would be awful. But I, I you know I would hate to think that anything anything like that could ever happen again. But you know we'll have to see because Bezos Bezos likes cheap labor and and his uh, little army. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's true. So I hope they don't listen and get the blueprint from these guys. <laughs> so anyway, um, the effect of this bullshit was pretty much what you would expect. People got angry and they got desperate. And so a lot of people decided they were just going to get the hell out of Dodge and flee from this oppression. And so even before 1700, so, you know, 50 years after the founding of this colony, um, you got the process of what was called trekking, which mm. is obviously we actually use that word in English. You know, it was a trek and it's when you just walk away. Hmm. And largely to escape the company, you had these farmers who just trekked further and further away from the seat of government on the Cape. So they're like, how far away do I have to walk before I can then establish a farm and the company's not going to be, you know, overseeing me more or less? How long do I have to walk until I get out of the company's purview? So unlike the uh, the nomadic ones, these people did want to settle down and farm. They just didn't want to do it in a place where the company was going to force their children to be Amazon employees. Right. Oh, man. it's That's crazy that it literally comes down to just walking away. Oh, no, it gets better. It gets better. Oh, um, sweet. Yeah. And so... These, um, these Boers who, as I said, so now we have the nomadic ones and then we have the ones who want to settle down, just not with the company. And so they are going north and eastward into the interior, further from the coast to find, you know, pastures and farmlands for their livestock and to escape the autocratic rule of the Dutch East India Company, which was, as we said, pretty ruthlessly administering the Cape Colony. And they probably accurately felt that the company wasn't really concerned with the interests of the Freeburgers, that is the people who'd worked for decades and gotten the status of no longer having to be employees. And that's where most of these people come from, is the Freeburgers, the people who were supposed to have been like, yay, you're done, but the company was actually like, I've decided you're going back to the warehouse. And all your children, too. <laughs> and your children. So that's that's where the trek, the trekking Boers are coming from. These people who feel like their interests are being completely ignored and all the company cares about is their international commerce and financial interests. Can't imagine what that's like, can you? I have I've never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's weird. Yeah, very strange. So glad we've moved beyond that. I know, like, it's... Isn't 2020 so great? My God, I love it. Uh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so the company, of course, doesn't want this to happen because they want to maintain control over everybody, right? Right. And so they just basically follow the Boers who are trying to walk away and just keep establishing government offices wherever the Boers stop. So it's like, okay, we've gone we're far, pretty far from the nearest company thing. This will be a good place. We'll stop here. We'll start a farm. And then like the next year, the company puts up a government office there. So like, <laughs> oh, okay. Not, not far enough. So they just keep trekking to try to get away. And every time they stop the next year, the company shows up and is like, oh yes, our colony is growing. And I trekked, I trekked so far away, couldn't yep. get away. <laughs> so there, and the result is interesting because the company was really originally only interested in just the coasts because that's where the commerce was happening and they weren't that interested in inland. But because they want to keep a iron hold over all these people, the company is being brought inland even though they don't actually want to be there and they're establishing these inland government centers at places I have trouble pronouncing, um, Swellendom. <laughs> and Graf Reinet, 
were two places where they established these mini governments. And eventually, um, the border that the company had uh, declared was the uh, the border beyond which nothing, you know, the, the there was no, not going to be more Dutch stuff. Um, was soon passed as the Boers kept trying to get away from the company and the company just kept expanding their government to wherever the Boers went. <sighs> okay, fine. <laughs> just keep going. But by, uh, by about 1780, the company and the Boers realized that they were on a collision course with the very warlike Bantu tribes of Central Africa who were also expanding south towards them. They're advancing uh -oh. south from Central Africa, and the Boers are advancing north from Southern Africa. And so the company realizes we're on a collision course here. And so the Boers, the company, and the Bantu tribes agreed to make the Great Fish River the a boundary. And the Bantu wouldn't try to put settlements past that, and the Boers wouldn't go beyond that to settle. Ah, uh, so finally there's a, there's a wall. Oh. Yeah, and so... It wasn't a, you know, especially friendly border, mm. but it was, you know, it was a border that they both pretty much agreed that we're not going to try to put settlements past that. Maybe steal stuff past that, yes, but we're not going to try to really permanently expand past that. And in 1795, the very heavily taxed Freeburgers of these of the frontier areas who were receiving no protection from the company because the company was on the verge of bankruptcy at this point. And so their company is not protecting these frontier districts against raiding Bantus who are, you know, crossing the river to raid and steal stuff and there's skirmishes and whatnot. Um, eventually, the people in the frontier get fed up with it and forcibly expel the officials of the Dutch East India Company and set up little independent governments. Well, that's great, but that whole time you were talking, I was thinking about how you said heavily tax free burgers, and I wanted to say so badly there's no such thing as a free burger. <laughs> That's great. Okay, That's perfect. So we, we've got independent company or governments, not companies, <clears throat> set up to sort of deal with the conflict arising from the Dutch East India Company's holdings, or at least claims, in this almost Central African land, and the Bantus are... Oh, wait a minute, the cat is demanding to be let out of my room. God damn it, <laughs> why do you get pickles these days? One moment. Mm. Hmm... Hmm. Oh no, I'm almost out of mead. Oh god. What will happen now? I should mark for cat. No, I'm not gonna do that. I'm just gonna keep rambling until he gets back. I'm back. Um, He's back. <laughs> there's a distinct possibility that in a few minutes the cat is gonna get bored of wherever he is and come and knock on the door to be let back in, which I probably won't hear but you probably will hear through the bike. So if you hear a knock on the door behind me, let me know. It's the cat. The, does that cat knock? Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> How do you teach a cat to knock? Oh, trust me, I didn't teach him. It's really annoying when he's knocking at the door at 4 a.m. <laughs> what, does he use his head? No, he uses his paw. He slams his paw against the door a bunch of times. That's uh, hysterical. My cat, <laughs> uh, the original Pickles, um or not pickles, as we called him, um, he would uh, punch doors with the top of his head if he wanted in. Ah, uh, yes. Force of action. <laughs> physical force door entering. <laughs> uh, physical force feline door knocking. I don't know. <laughs> okay. 
That was good. Where were we? We were talking about independent governments. Yes. Okay. So after the company kind of got expelled from the some of the districts because they were bankrupt and couldn't actually protect anything, you get these little independent uh, republics popping up. Classic. Um, yeah. And so in addition to being really tired of paying high taxes to the company, which is a power that wasn't actually doing anything for them, they were also inspired by the successful American Revolution that had recently occurred because we're in 1795. Right, right. A lot of people are being inspired by it. Yep. Yep. And so they set up uh, little independent republics in all the places that the company had established these satellite governments to monitor them, which is kind of cool. That Say that again? So in all those places where they tried to settle and the company had set up like a little satellite government to monitor them, you know, uh -uh -uh. Um, that's where then they made the headquarters of all these little independent republics. That's wonderful. Yep. I love yep. that. But a few months after this, uh, the Dutch Republic collapsed back home in the Netherlands and a revolution which was supported by the recent French revolutionary government created a new state called the Batavian Republic, which fully nationalized the Dutch East India Company and subsumed it into the state. It was also pretty openly just a puppet state of revolutionary France. So that meant that former Dutch possessions were now technically fair game for anyone who was at war with the French. Uh-oh. And okay. who's always at war with the French? <laughs> yeah. Who okay. is it? Wait, what? Sorry? Who is it? That who? That's always at war with France? Yes. It's gotta be the British. There you go. And that's oh. how our villains enter the story. Oh, God. Oh, no! <laughs> yep. So, in September of 1795, in the course of their war against France, the British sent a force to occupy Cape Town in South Africa and take over administration of the Cape Colony. And they also reversed the progress towards independence that all these little Boer groups had gotten and just declared, yeah, nope, none of these republics are valid. All of this is part of the Dutch colony, which is now our colony. Oof. Oof. Yep. And but Oof. they didn't really establish much in the much in terms of permanent administration there. They kind of just came in told everybody that they were in charge. There wasn't a lot of effort to really get much on the ground changed yet because they had bigger things to worry about, obviously, with their wars against France. Of course. Yep. Yep. Um, and it did um, eventually come to that, though, because when the... And yes, as you probably noticed, I have two paragraphs out of order when I was putting this together. When the third, uh, when the War of the Third Coalition, which is one of like the 400 wars Napoleon fought, um, when that war broke out between Napoleon and pretty much everyone else in 1803, another larger British force was sent to the Cape, which still had some Dutch military presence who just kind of been hanging out there since, you know, the Netherlands had ceased to exist as a country. And then there was a new government and they're not sure what to do. So they just kind of hung out in their forts and the British decided it wanted to actually really put like boots on the ground and actually start running South Africa. And so they oh. send a force and there's an engagement in January on the shores of a place called Table Bay, where they take a castle all right on the Cape of Good Hope, which was sort of the last Dutch bastion there. And it surrenders to the British, who are led by Sir David Baird. <laughs> and so the British de facto then are just controlling all of South Africa. And then later in 1814, the Anglo-Dutch Treaty officially hands over 
the Cape Colony from Holland to the British Crown. Oh, uh oh, no. And things weren't exactly happy for the Boers, who are still just trying to farm, and a lot of them are not too happy with the British administration. And in 1815, a number of them rebelled at a place called Slogter's Neck. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, but they were quickly, it was not like super well organized or big, and it was just sort of a spontaneous, let's have a little rebellion. And they were quickly defeated, and some of the Boer leaders were hanged. And the problems didn't end. The British were continuing to sort of like solidify their control and like get more and more of the country actually under their control, not just on paper. And there also are constant border wars between the Boers and the Kosa tribes to the east. And land is getting tight because they've been in the same places now, but there are more people. And so a lot of Boer settlers become once again trekkers and start walking again to look for more land to farm. Couldn't get away. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Ugh. And so okay. this ends up ends um it starts in about 1815 when they start walking, but it's not until a few decades later that it really becomes big. And more and more of the Dutch farmers were dissatisfied with British rule and found that it was pretty much as shitty as Dutch East India Company rule had been. And so the Great Trek, which is just such a great name, the Great Trek started, and this is between about 1835 and the early 1840s, during which period about twelve to 14,000 Boers, which are whole families, you know, women, children, cats, dogs, everything, who were just tired of the British leave Cape Colony and just sort of strike out inland into the Great Plains. Um, and they cross the Orange River into the region called Natal, and they cross a, another really flat area called the Zutspansberg, and to an area called the Transvaal, which is going to end up being very important. Uh-oh. Okay. Yep. And it's mm. great, because they actually left these, like, public messages to the British colonial government before they left the colony, which expressed their reasons for departure. And so one of the leaders of one of the biggest sort of individual movements was Pete Retief, um, and he addressed a letter to the government in 1837, which stated that the Boers did not see any prospect for peace or happiness for their children in a country with such internal issues, since you've now got, like, the Dutch being ruled by British, no one's happy, and he also complained about the severe losses which they had to endure from the laws of the British administration, as Such well as... Sorry, go on. I was going to say, uh, which laws? Like tax, you know, the British are, oh, are just as bad classic. with the tax stuff as the company had been. Of course. And are, you know, just kind of trying to squeeze everything out of them to pay for Britain's wars around the world. Right. Okay. Yep. And, um, in addition to this... The British are, you know, having pretty continual frontier wars against various of the African tribes. And this is ending up with many of the Boers farms being, you know, burned or ruined who are near the edge because the British are fighting these intermittent wars on the borders. But when the British aren't there physically at that time, that means you just get your farm burned. Sure. Uh, in course. addition, uh, the Boers were not happy with the English church system because England comes in and attempts to, you know, do what it does, which is, you know... The cat's knocking on the door. One second. What? <laughs> the cat's knocking because he doesn't like the English church system. George has indoctrinated that poor boy. Okay, I'm back. 
<laughs> and so is he. <laughs> Did the cat, I guess the cat got bored. Yeah, he's he's here now. Anyway, um, okay. the English tried to do what they always did, which is just sort of drag and select the Anglican church and copy and paste it onto wherever they were doing and call it, you know, ah, yes, this is the Church of Ireland, despite the fact that the Irish are, you know, for the most part Catholic. You know, ah, yes, this is the Church of Scotland, despite the fact that the Scots wanted to just be Presbyterian. So they tried to just sort of copy-paste the Anglican church onto the Dutch. Mm. The Dutch are all um, Reformed church, you know, which is um, Calvinist, and they were not super cool with the system of the English church and not happy about it, and they just did not think it was compatible with their Dutch Reformed church. So there are a lot of issues that a lot of people are just not happy and leave. Huh. It's almost as if you can't program all the people of the world with your little software and expect them to be happy about it. Huh. Weird. Fascinating. Weird. Yeah. And the Boers, by this time, had already formed, um, actually, in preparation, they had formed law codes for their uh, their communities on the trek and had made all preparations because they were aware that, you know, this was a really dangerous thing that they were going to do. They were just going to sort of strike out into the unknown. And so they made preparations for how to run their communities on the on the journey. And uh, that's that guy, Retief, um, concluded his letter with, and I quote, we quit this colony under the full assurance that the English government has nothing more to require of us and will allow us to govern ourselves without its interference in the future. Huh. <laughs> Here's a good joke. Pete and Retief went out into the African wilderness to try and settle an independent government. Retief fell out. Who was left? I don't know. Do you know, do you know the Pete and Re Repeat no. joke? Oh, Pete and Repeat go on a boat. Pete fell out. Who's left? Repeat? Pete and Repeat went out on a boat. Pete fell out. Who was left? Repeat? I don't, I don't get Pete it. Pete and Repeat went out on the boat. Oh, fuck. <laughs> Damn it, Aaron. That one got me when I was like six. <laughs> sorry, well, sorry. I, I have the mind of a child. <laughs> You're doing great, buddy. <laughs> oh, that's going to play well. <laughs> anyway, so <laughs> moving on. All right. Um, so as the uh, the trekkers, as they were called, the Voor trekkers, um, progressed further inland, they continued to establish Boer settlements in the interior of South Africa, which is you know exactly what generations before had tried to do to escape the East India or the Dutch East India Company, and there ended up being over a dozen little independent Dutch republics founded on as they you know as groups settled down. Hell yeah! And the British <laughs> did not try to stop the. Uh, the Boers from trekking out away from the Cape. After all, um, the British were like, this is great. Uh, this saves us a lot of trouble because the Boers functioned as pioneers, uh. opening up the interior for those that followed. You know, they went there first and found the good spots and started building the infrastructure. And the British pretty much just simply followed them, swallowing up newly settled areas in turn, you know, gradually extending their control outward from the Cape along the coast to the east and eventually annexing the whole region of Natal where the Boers had tried to go in 1843. So the Boers just, or the British just waited till the Boers did all the hard work and then they just came and been like, this is part of our empire now. <laughs> that was a perfect, that was like a perfect, like, snooty British aristocrat voice. I hope you know that. <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> this is part of our empire now. And We're it was very, to... uh, 
<laughs> Sorry. It was very easy for them to do because, you know, the Boers were farmers and herdsmen who were just gradually extending their territory with a view to, you know, being able to make a living and support their families. They did, they weren't like a political movement with like an agenda. So there wasn't really any like mechanism by which all these little independent groups could resist being overtaken by the British. Uh, whose domination was spreading across South Africa like an itchy red blanket. There's a dark joke in there, but I don't know what it is. No, it's a it's a Jeremy Clarkson phrase. Oh, spreading oh, okay. like an itchy red blanket. Oh my God, that's <laughs> awful. <laughs> I believe he was using it to refer to communism. I'm using it to refer to the British Empire. Oh well, that's very very good. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So it's like that. You know, they're just trying to find farmland. They're not like a an organized political movement. So. What are you going to do when your little tiny community just as the British are like, yep, we're here. This is now part of our colony. Ugh, disgusting. Sorry. Yep. And so after having annexed most of the newly opened land, the British eventually acknowledged the existence of two Boer republics, i.e. the ones that were on the edge and thus were a nice buffer between the British and potentially hostile tribes. The British had advanced as far as they wanted to at the moment, and thought, well, we'll just now acknowledge the independence of these two little republics, and they can absorb, you know, anything that comes from further inland. Sure. Okay. Yeah. So there's a pair of treaties. Uh, the Sand River Convention of 1852 recognized the independence of the Transvaal Republic, and the Bloemfontein Convention of 1854 recognized the independence of the Orange Free State. Orange Free. Oh, what a life. <laughs> Yeah. Free oranges. Yep. Um, and free burgers, as it turns out. And free burgers, yeah, exactly. Hell, um, I want to go to South Africa. <laughs> so the British officially recognized these two countries as existing, but British colonial expansion for most of the 19th century still featured intermittent border skirmishes and wars, some official, some unofficial, against both, you know, Boer settler groups and African tribes. And so it's like, even though they officially say, yes, we acknowledge these two countries, they're still always kind of meddling around the borders of them. Of course they are. Of course they That's are, That's what the yeah. British do. <laughs> but, for, you know, for the moment, it's mostly just meddling. But then something happens which changes all of that. Oh, no. The discovery of diamonds in 1867 in the Transvaal uh, near the Vaal River, 550 mm. miles northeast of Cape Town, which is where the British colony is headquartered. So, you know, this is really, really far from the British center of control. But the fact that diamonds are discovered really ends the isolation that the Boers who were really deep in the interior had been able to kind of get because the British had no interest in them. And so they were able to mostly do their own thing if you got far enough away. But once diamonds were discovered, that was going to dramatically change the trajectory of everything. Couldn't get away. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, because that discovery triggered a diamond rush that attracted people from all over the world, but especially England. And it just flooded the area with people like there was a little village called Kimberley that within five years was a town of over 50,000. Oh, wow. Which is that's a lot of people to just spring up in a town in the middle of the plains of South Africa. It's interesting. Um, <clears throat> Did you ever play Far Cry 2? No. Did you ever play any of the Far Cry's? Well, five, obviously, but that's the obviously only one. five. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Duh. We played that together. <laughs> um, <laughs> Far Cry 2 takes place in Africa and like the draw, the pickups, the, the collectibles or whatever. 
are like boxes of diamonds, and all the currency is like you use diamonds yeah, to buy things. That is that is related to this. Mm, mm, good to know. I learned something from a video game. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, don't tell a boomer. I won't. They'll be confused. No, they'll be fine. But they'll be like, "Oh, do you mean do you mean the the video games at the bar?" <laughs> God. That's what they call them. They call the the slot machines the video. They call them video games. It's they fascinating. Do. That's that's weird. That's weird. Anyway, yeah, it's a thing. So, um, this all, as you can imagine, draws the attention of British imperial interests because, mm, no shit. <laughs> And so, in 1871, the British, as they so often do, took over some land that they really didn't have any actual right to. Mm. Um, since diamonds had been discovered in what was a very isolated area of the uh, the Orange Free State, people were just flocking there from everywhere, as we said. And so you end up with the with British, Boers, Cape Dutch, different tribal groups, all kind of flocking into these, both the Orange Free State and the Transvaal, to try to, you know, find diamond deposits now that it's known that this area has diamonds. And the Free State, the Orange Free State, tried to install a sort of local government over the area where the main diamond deposit is and where most people are ending up. Because it didn't really work, though, because there was there was no infrastructure. This had been a very isolated, out-of-the-way area, mm. and so there wasn't any easy way to, like, how do we suddenly govern 50,000 people there? Um, And there were just too many different groups. You know, the Boers are now by far a minority because you have tons of actual British English, you have Cape Dutch, you have all these different groups all in the area all wanting a piece of the action. And so there's no effective way for the free state to actually govern it. And the leader of one of the tribes in the area, whose name was Nicholas Waterboer, (laughs) because <laughs> um, many of the tribes took on Dutch names. Um, he told the British that he had a right to the land and was placing it under British control. Hmm. Now, the land was not in any way historically tied with his tribe, and his whole claim was actually based on a much earlier treaty that his tribe had made with the British. So even though the British had recognized the Orange Free State... They decided that this treaty they had earlier made with some tribe superseded that. And so, also, there were diamonds to be had. And so Uh. the British were like, well, you know what? Let's do it. And so the British jumped on the opportunity and moved in and swiftly annexed the whole area. Much to the anger of the people in the Free State that the British have just come in, you know a decade and change after recognizing their independence and been like, oh, this region with all the diamonds is actually part of the British Empire now. I want to make a meme from that scene in The Office where Michael Scott's talking to Toby Flenderson and he's like, why are you the way that you are? I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. I just want to put, like, Britain on Toby Flenderson's face. Fair. Fair. Hilarious. So obviously this, you know, angered a lot of people in the Free State but initiating war with the British did not seem like a good idea to most people, so they just kind of stewed about it, and eventually, about five years later, the British did finally officially buy the land from the Free State, though the Free State wasn't given any choice in the matter. Britain just kind of wrote them a check and was like, we are buying your claims so you can never again claim that you own this land. 
and God. then the British just left the check on the table and left, more or less. Um, wow. They didn't really give them a choice of whether they wanted to give up their claims. In fact, they made it clear, no, we n- do not want to give up our claims. But they were just like, well, too bad. We have bought your claims. It's like, but they're my claims. They're like, well, we bought them. <laughs> and, if, and if you don't accept that, if you don't accept the check, it's war. We'll kill you. Yeah. So, yeah, this and this is, uh, as you probably can predict, kind of a running pattern for the British. Because no as more diamond fields were discovered outside of the British annexed area, and also gold started to be discovered as well, it was only going to be a matter of time before Britain just had to have that too, right? Yeah, of course. Yep. Every time. I mean, look, I get it. I get it. It's like, you're, okay, think about the, the well, maybe this is just me being a little bit, a little bit meated up, but... I think about Britain itself, like what it would be to be like in this game where you're like, ah, we're conquering the world and we're we're collecting all of the resources and we're going to hold them and we'll all be wealthy gentlemen, you know, all this great stuff. Like, you know, Um, it's like to be in the sort of like zeitgeist of that, if you were if you were an elite, like it would be really hard to not be like, yeah, let's just, you know, fuck it. I don't know anybody in Africa. Just annex it and let's get the diamonds and, you know. It's going to be a jolly good sport. You know, like, yeah, I, yep. I, I hear yep. it. You know, I get it. Hmm. Yeah, and that makes it so the people who really, like, oppose that among the British elite and were like, why the hell are we doing this? That's what makes them such interesting figures, the ones who kind of saw through it all and were like, guys, this is not good. Um, people like William Gladstone, um, oh. who I think we're planning well, on covering in the future, aren't we? I think we are, yeah. Um, yeah, like... To, to find a person in the system of uh, of control like that who just says, wait, why do we gotta do all this? It's almost like he's a buzzkill, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. like, like it's this, this they're like, aha, we're yeah, going to... That's not very sporting, is it, old chap? <laughs> no, no, we're going, to, we're, we're going to take over the world and then make every single person dependent on the British Empire. We'll be, we'll be rich men forever and our children will benefit from that plenty until the end of time and kingdom come it's only a matter how how sporting you are it's yeah you know i can again i can hear that voice like it's like yeah it's like (laughs) we can get it so let's let's go get it (laughs) yep yep Yep. so anyway the british are wanting wanting more as ever and so in 1875 the earl of carnarvon Uh the the british (laughs) colonial secretary In an attempt to extend British influence, approached the leadership of the Orange Free State and the Transvaal Republic, these two states they had recognized, even though they then proceeded to annex territory from, and tried to organize a federation of British and Boer South African territories, which would be modeled on the 1867 Federation of the French and English parts of Canada, but of course all under the authority of the British Empire. Oh, of course. Of course. But there was obviously, uh, there wasn't a lot of love between the British and the Boers at this point, and there's also not really any cultural connection. Like, these British colonial leaders have basically nothing in common other than being Europeans with the Boers. Like, the Boers are Dutch Calvinist farmers, and the British are British Anglican merchants. So yeah. like they don't they don't really have any shared kind of things. So the Boers are like, why the hell would we want to be in one state with you guys? Yeah, so like the British, it's like, you know, the, the British aristocracy or the whatever, the big British guys, the really rich ones, it's like, 
India to them was a, a place where we can ride an elephant and, and sample the spices of the Far East into the Boers. It's like, dude, we like raised the fucking elephants. <laughs> That's the difference, I think. Yeah. So the Boers are like, yeah, no, we're going to pass on that. <laughs> but they're in a pretty difficult position because those two little Boer republics are being squeezed between the British on one side and on the other side, the rapidly expanding Zulu kingdom, uh -huh. which is quite warlike. And so they're in a really bad position. Um, they're right in the middle. And it's like, um, what do, what do we do here, guys? Yeah. Well, in 1877, and this is this is a real name, I know it sounds made up, but <laughs> the British Secretary for Native Affairs in the Natal, who is Sir Theophilius Shepstone. <laughs> Sorry, no, Sir Theophilus. I added an extra I. Sir Theophilus Shepstone. Sir Theophilus Shepstone. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So he um <laughs> he just announces that he was annexing the Transvaal Republic for the British Empire. Oh, wow. He just literally he just said, like, this is this is now part of the British Empire. He just, like, posted a selfie on Instagram. He's like, welcome to Britain. <laughs> Bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, the Boers of the Transvaal Republic objected to this, but they were in a really tough situation because as long as they're being threatened by the Zulus on one side, they fear that if they, you know, took up arms to resist the British annexation... Uh, then the Zulu king, King Quechuayo, would probably take the opportunity to attack their settlements on that side of their republic. And they're worried that if they end up in a war on two fronts, that you're then going to get other tribes in the area moving in to try to take part of their uh, part of their republic. And it would just, the whole thing would fall apart and just go down in flames. So Ugh. they're like, we don't want to be annexed, but what do we do here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. God. It's a bad place to be. Um, yeah, but it's course, really no wonder. Stories like these <clears throat> just sort of get, like, memory hold in history because these are there's just, like, these really, really painful and real scenarios that groups of people find themselves in where they're stuck between a rock and a hard place, and it's like nobody wants to think about the horror of being stuck there, you know? At least that is, that's the way it is for me. You know, I didn't, I didn't want to study this, this Borer stuff. Until somebody literally requested it because it's just so dark, you know? Yeah. 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 Yep. So, um, you know, the British annexation results in a lot of resentment against British occupation and really sort of gives an impetus to Boer nationalism forming. Because even though they're not going to actively rebel at the moment, they're like, we are not happy in this situation. We don't want to be British subjects. Um... So it kind of actually brings the Boers together more than they had been. Ugh. And so then in um, in July of 1880, Major General Sir George Pomeroy Coley, <laughs> after returning from a colonial service in India, took over as governor of Natal, Transvaal, which they just said was theirs now, right. as well as High Commissioner of Southeast Africa and Military Commander of the British Forces. <laughs> no, 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 so, no, it's, it's military. Military. <laughs> military. Military. <laughs> so, I'm glad we um, finally started using our snooty British voices. <laughs> it's been long in coming, definitely. Yep. <laughs> We've been waiting for this for a long time. <laughs> so good old um, 
George Pomeroy Coley <laughs> never actually visited the annexed Transvaal to like assess the situation or to actually talk with the Boer leaders, uh, many of whom he had known and actually was friends with because um, the Boers and the British had earlier cooperated sometimes when they were both dealing with Zulus. And so he actually had like some good relationships with some of the Boer leaders in the Transvaal, but he never actually went there to like assess the situation himself or actually talk to them. And instead he relied on some very incompetent staff to convey events in the Transvaal to him and to represent him in the Transvaal. And that incompetent staff did not do that very well, and the situation really deteriorated. Yeah, well, he's just sitting at home, you know, with his toast and eggs, and he's got his staff of, you know, 500 servants or whatever. And he's, like, looking at his newspaper, and he's like, he's like, Millie, bring in the mail. And she brings in, like, transmissions from Africa. And Oh, that's, uh, you'll see why that is interesting that you mentioned him saying bring in the mail <laughs> okay. no this, that's gonna come up later um uh, it's gonna oh. be important that's oh, that's, no. that's funny you re- are you reading ahead on me man no i swear to god i'm not yeah because it's in a couple pages so i was like wow how far has he read ahead oh, no. <laughs> so the situation's really gone downhill um the final trigger for war comes when a boer named pete bazudenhut <laughs> well done um Bezudenhut. Bezudenhut <laughs> refuses to pay a tax that was just illegally inflated by colonial officials like he's like but the tax is supposed to be this they're like well now it's this hey and like hey, there's there's another joke in here pete and Bezudenhut went out on a boat pete <laughs> fell out who was left Say I'm, it. Not, I'm not engaging Bezudenhut. <laughs> not engaging with you all right (laughs) all right so since he refuses to pay this tax government officials seize his wagon and decide they're going to auction it off to pay the tax bill in uh, november of 1880 but a hundred or so armed boers disrupt the auction beat up the presiding sheriff and reclaim bazudenhut's wagon (laughs) Bazudenhut's wagon, that sounds like some kind of like a philosophical concept, like Schrodinger's cat or whatever. Yeah, either a philosophical concept or some sort of like quest reward item in Skyrim for one of the Daedra. Yeah. Bazudenhut's wagon allows you to have 50% increased carrying capacity. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. So anyway, uh, the first shots of the war were fired when this group of Boers fought back against government troops who were sent after them to take back the wagon. <laughs> um, and once this had sort of kicked off, um, the Transvaal formally, decla- formally declared independence from the United Kingdom. And with that, the first Boer War had begun. Nice. Woo. Yep. The first. So, oh. <laughs> yep. The fiercely independent Boers, because we talked about, they're they're really just all about doing their own thing on their farms. Mm -hmm. They did not have, like, a regular professional army. Rather, when there was a dangerous situation, like a Zulu raid, or in this case, the British Empire, Uh all the men in an area would come together and form a militia organized into individual military units called commandos, and they would elect their own officers. Well, that's... Kind of cool. And so since commandos were a civilian militia, they they didn't have uniforms. Each man just wore whatever he wanted, which was the kind of things we were seeing in the picture. It's usually just a 
jacket, um, a lot of khaki clothes, pretty much the same stuff they wore farming outside, and usually a slouch hat, because you have a you have to have a big hat to keep the sun off when you're farming. Oh, for sure. I mean, you're farming yeah. in Africa. Like, yeah, God. so they're just, you know, wearing earth tones and khaki and big hats, mostly. Okay. And they also, of course, all brought their own weapons because they don't have an army, so they don't have, like, standard-issue weapons. They just brought their hunting rifles and their horses. Um, the average Boer citizens who made up these commandos were just just farmers, and they'd spent their whole lives, you know, riding around their farms and hunting. And so they're very skilled horsemen and hunters and very, very good marksmen. The British picked on the wrong Dutch people. They did. They did indeed. As we will see, this this comes very, very true. Here. Can you mark it here? I need to go get a drink of water. I am refreshed. I'm glad to hear you're refreshed and have returned to the front here in East India. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. <laughs> Hand me my cane, uh, Sigmund. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um... <laughs> So where were we? Ah, yes, the Boers are extremely good hunters and marksmen and horsemen. Um, Great. So the first battle of this first Boer War is at a place called Bronkhorstspruit. Okay. On the 20th of December, 1880. And this happens when Lieutenant Colonel Philip Onstruther <laughs> was leading the 94th Regiment of Foot, which was a mainly Irish regiment, actually, huh. who had just been sent to Africa to deal with Dutch people. Oh. Poor, poor guys. Yeah, I was going to say, Anyways, poor, poor bastards. <laughs> so they are marching towards Pretoria, which is the capital of the Transvaal, and led at their front by Lieutenant Colonel Onstruther when they are halted by a Boer commando group in the road. And mm. They're approaching a small stream called the Spruit, which is about 38 miles from Pretoria, where they're headed. And the leader of this commando unit who has stopped them in the road is named Franz Joubert, and he is the brother of General Piet Joubert, who we will see later. And he orders Anstruther and the column to turn back, stating that the territory was once again a Boer Republic, and therefore any further advance by the British would be deemed an act of war, and that they had to scram. Nice. Yep. So Anstruther, of course, refuses, and orders that ammunition be distributed, at which point the Boers open fire, and the ambushed British troops in the road were annihilated. Uh, the column lost 56 men dead and 92 wounded out of a few hundred, so... Wow. Very heavy casualties. Yeah, I would say. And so, with the majority of his troops dead or wounded, Anstruther, himself dying, lying in the road, ordered them to surrender. Um, the Boer losses were two killed and five wounded. God damn! <laughs> yeah, so they just absolutely wrecked that column. Wow. And that's actually how pretty much most of the war went. Outnumbered, vastly outgunned and not actually professional soldiers, the Boers inflicted extremely severe casualties on the British in most engagements. Um, Too bad about the Irish guys in that column. Yeah, no, it's, like, sad, because they probably didn't... They didn't want to be there, and, like... Mugging Anstruther being like, no, this is the British Empire now. Just got, a, you know, a hundred <laughs> poor Irish bastards <clears throat> killed. Well, it's like the, the uh... What's it? Um, Franz Joubert, or whatever. Just being, like... Come back with a warrant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, 
<laughs> That's good. Yeah, no, that pretty much is it. That pretty much is what happened. Wow, and Hans Truther was like, we don't need a warrant. We are the British. And Hans Truther's like, sorry. <laughs> That's what I always say whenever anyone knocks on the bathroom door and I'm in it. Come back with a warrant. Do you say that to the cat, too? <laughs> he doesn't, he does not recognize the the authority of any earthly government. That is one amazing cat. <laughs> so, the Boer Uprising was a pretty officially, uh, you know, kicked off then with that massacre of that column, and the six small British forts, which were scattered around the Transvaal, were pretty much all suddenly, you know, taken by surprise and surrounded, because... The British are just in these little forts, and the Boers are out in the countryside, and so all the forts find themselves besieged by all the local Boers and not able to leave. They're just, you know, stuck there. Sure. And General Coley um, was, of course, eager to lift these sieges and to restore British control of the Transvaal. So although he had requested reinforcements, uh, he was told those would not reach him until sometime in February. So... He is like, okay, I've got to do something else because he's pretty sure that the garrisons of all these little forts are not going to survive a couple months till February. So he musters a relief column of all the troops who are available to him at the moment, which is about 1,200, and they set out for the nearest fort to figure, okay, we'll just start with the nearest one, rescue the guys there, you know, sort of leapfrog it across. Sure. And this is a wonderful display of the arrogance of... George Pomeroy Coley. Um, on the 23rd of January, 1881, he sends a message to the commanding general of the Boers, Pete Joubert, calling on him to disband his forces or face the full might of the British Empire. And he writes, and I think you should read this in one of the British voices. Oh, oh, good. Because I, I was looking at the head of this, and I'm like, oh, God, like, this is, oh, this is beautiful. <clears throat> the men who follow you are, many of them ignorant, and know little of anything outside of their own country. But you, who are well educated and have traveled, cannot be aware but how uh, cannot but be aware how helpless is the struggle you have embarked upon, and how little any accidental success gained can affect the ultimate result. Turn into Palpatine at the end, though. A, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Take your but, yeah. boa weapon. Strike me down with it. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. So, yeah, I love how um, the just absolute wrecking of that column is referred to as an accidental success. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really how delusional they are. It's interesting. And this is, it gets better. So, yeah, without waiting for a reply, he just sends this message. Uh, General Coley led his group called the Natal Field Force. And they had artillery and Gatling guns and everything, you know, modern army, to a mountain pass called Lying's Neck, where they attempted to break through the Boer defense lines, which blocked their passage through the Drakensberg Mountains, on the other side of which was the first fort they were intending to free. And so he's like, okay, we just got to break through them here, and then we'll be close to the fort. Of the 480 troops he sent to charge the pass, 150 never returned, and many of his own officers were picked off by Boer snipers, and the whole advance was just turned back with severe losses. Wow. Yeah, yeah okay. They just tried to force a mountain pass held by people with big hats and antique rifles hiding in the trees. <laughs> Man, it's, it's, it's real interesting just how... Um... 
Vietnam over here. I know, I was going to say, like, we got a little <laughs> bit of Vietnam. <laughs> British people in the grass start speaking weird Dutch. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the Boers, um, they used, what? No, nothing, there was just, like, an awkward silence in there where I was expecting I, you to, like... I was, I was hitting the vape, okay? <laughs> alright, alright, alright. <laughs> You're doing it again, aren't you? Maybe. <laughs> okay. 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 <clears throat> yes. Yes. Quite. Mm. Okay. Back. Back at it. All right. So, um, the Boers used their knowledge of the terrain, since you know they actually lived there, and their marksmanship skills to keep the British forces sort of constantly reeling and unable where you know where to react. And so after a military mail convoy had been forced to retreat from a Boer ambush, General Coley decided that he was going to bring several hundred troops and escort the next mail convoy personally and give those Boers the what for. <laughs> <laughs> Is this the mail you were talking about earlier? Yeah. Yep. Oh, yep. Okay. Sweet. <laughs> so yeah, he's like, well, they're gonna ambush my mail truck. I'll show them. So the next, <laughs> next, the next USPS truck going by, he has several hundred regulars with him, and he's gonna, he's gonna guard it. <laughs> and again, the skirmishing tactics of the Boers proved deadly. And sure enough, the mail truck and Coley's column were ambushed, and he lost about half of his men. Oh, God. It probably would have been more if a storm hadn't rolled in, which brought darkness on early, which allowed his convoy to retreat with less casualties. Wow. Because, yeah, once again, they just got absolutely wrecked. Um, and the wounded of the British were literally left in the field by their fleeing comrades to die of blood loss or exposure to the elements. God. Oh. So this is, so this is all within 10 days of the rebellion starting. And so within 10 days, he had lost over a quarter of his available troops in the region. Jeez. Don't mess with the Boers. God. Yep. Yep. So on 14th of February, hostilities were suspended with a brief truce, awaiting uh, the outcome of peace negotiations, were, which were initiated by an offer from the Transvaal Boer leader, Paul Kruger. Gotcha. Yep. And during this time, uh, Coley's reinforcements arrived that he'd been waiting for, and he was told more would come soon. But the British government, in the meantime, had offered to send a royal commission to investigate the whole issue of the Transvaal and possibly to see about withdrawing troops from the Transvaal while they figured it all out. The British government in England was actually, like, not really into this war and was like, we should find a way to work this one out peacefully. Um, probably because they had other wars going on that were more important and they did not want to, ex you know, expend a lot of military force in this area. Yeah, we'll and be so back for them later. You know? Yeah, they're pretty conciliatory and like, oh yes, of course, we can find an equitable solution. <laughs> um, Coley, however, George Pomeroy Coley, that uh, is. Sir. Uh, was, sir. <laughs> sir, sorry, Sir George Pomeroy Coley, was very critical of this stance. It was like, no, nah, we're, we're going to take him, man. Like, yeah, I'm not going to wait around. And so even though there's a truce going on while they're waiting for, you know, the finalization of the agreement between the British and Paul Kruger, Coley decides to attack again now that he has reinforcements and figures if I can you know, have a victory and beat them, it'll actually enable the British government to negotiate from a position of strength. Because right now we're negotiating having lost every engagement. Right. And so he's like, if I beat them somewhere, we can probably get a better deal. 
So on 26th of February, 1881, George Pomeroy Coley uh, led a <laughs> night march of about 400 men from his most elite units. So these are these aren't just like the sort of you know J J R O T C of the British Army. Right. These these are like actual really good units. Uh, the 92nd Highlanders, considered one of the best frontline fighting units in the British Army, among others. And so he leads about 400 really elite units out in a night march, and they reached the top of Majuba Hill, which overlooked the main Boer military encampment where the largest number of Paul Kruger's military forces are gathered, awaiting the results of the negotiations. At first light, a group of Highlanders advertised their presence by standing on the hill over the encampment, shaking their fists and yelling profanities at the Boers. <laughs> Which is a gr I don't know why. This is... This, yeah. It makes no sense. Like, okay, we have violated the truce, and so we're now going to announce we're here to violate the truce by shaking our fists. fists and screaming yeah and so the boers uh stormed the mountain in their you know typical formation of small commando units you know really taking advantage of the dead ground where the uh the british had no visibility because of the you know the undulations of the hills and advanced from multiple directions simultaneously you know stopping shooting a few rounds moving on to the next point of cover and they're just coming from all sides converging on the british position and panic just takes hold among the british as they're being hit from multiple directions and terrified soldiers just start sprinting for the rear and f running down the hillside the way they had come and it just turns the entire column into a bloody rout oh oh no and the British suffered heavy losses of the 400, 92 were killed, 131 were injured, and 50 were taken prisoner. And Major General Coley was among those dead. He was um, shot in the head while he was trying unsuccessfully to stop the rout and get everybody to face forward and fight the Boers. Of the Boers, one was killed and six were wounded. One? One. Holy crap. What? How? I don't know how that happened. Yeah, because the British just don't have... They don't know how to deal with this, uh, these commando units. I guess it really pays to know the land. Mm-hmm. And to yeah. know the kind of uh, enemy you're fighting. Fascinating. Wow. Yep. So, this was not good. Um, And, like, in the British newspapers and stuff, like, this was... This was treated as even, like, a bigger disaster than... The recent big military disaster, which had been Isan Luana in the Zulu Wars, when a whole British army had been wiped out, um, this was seen as even worse because this is, you know, elite units had just lost it and run in the face of people who weren't even professional soldiers. Yeah. Literally farmers. God damn. Yeah, you know, nearly 100 men had died, more had been wounded, and 50 had surrendered to just an irregular guerrilla militia group. So this is just a, seen as a national disgrace. Yeah, and on top of it, like, the the uh, sort of persuasive power that has um, against the British soldiers at this point, that, oh, a bunch of fun, we're just going to take out those those hillbillies who are, you know, they're just, they're, let's just live in this land and we're going to go get them because they won't sign, you know, where the line's dotted or whatever, and they get there and they're like, haha, what a bunch of hillbillies, let's yell at them. And then it's like, 92 killed, 131 injured, 50 taken prisoner, and the general leading them, the major general, whatever, Collie, 
getting killed, shot straight through the head, it's like, that ain't good for, uh... Yeah. That's not good PR. <laughs> really isn't. Yeah. Really isn't. And so, um... On March 6th, 1881, uh, the truce was formally agreed, ironically, on the very terms that Coley had, you know, said were insufficient and had done his whole attack to try to get better terms. Uh, the First Boer War was the first conflict since the American Revolution in which the British had been decisively defeated and had had to sign a peace treaty under unfavorable terms. Hmm. Well, can't win them all. <laughs> yeah. So Sir Evelyn Wood, who was Coley's replacement, signed an armistice to end the war, and subsequently there was an official peace treaty signed with Kruger in March of that year, later in March, and it brought the war to its official close. And these were the, the terms, and this is called the Praetoria Convention. It was negotiated by a three-man royal commission. Uh, the British agreed to allow for complete Boer self-government in the Transvaal, but under British suzerainty. So, like, you're officially part of the empire, but you get to have your own government and do your own stuff, but you don't get to have, like, foreign relations. Like, you don't get to have an embassy to a European country. You have to do that through us. Uh. So it's kind of the almost independence thing, but not quite. Um, but it's pretty good because not very many people successfully fight the British and get to not just get completely subsumed. It's true. It is true. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so this is actually the year. So the very next year, 1882, is when Denise Rates, Denise Rates, sorry. Yeah, I just want to, like, make it weird sounding. Um, was born. So in 1882, in the Orange Free State, which is the other one of the British-recognized Boer states. So this first Boer War was between the Transvaal Republic and the British. And then, yeah, the next year, Denise Reitz is born in the other Boer Republic, the Orange Free State. And his father was a man named Francis Reitz. And this the Reitzes were an old and cultured family. Oh. Um, his grandfather had gone from Cape Town. They were an old, in an old Dutch family in Cape Town, had gone to school in Edinburgh in Scotland. And according to family legend, had once dined with Sir Walter Scott, the oh. author of Ivanhoe. Sir Walter Scott, you say? And Francis himself, (laughs) Francis himself was also educated in Edinburgh and he made Afrikaans translations of the poetry of Robert Burns. Like he was a very, very well-educated, well-esteemed gentleman. And he had been a lawyer. Real quick, real quick. Sorry, I don't mean to just derail you here, but could you explain what Afrikaans is? Afrikaans is the dialect of Dutch that the Boers are speaking at this point. Okay. And how different is it from regular Dutch? Do you know? Not that different. Okay. Um, it's basically like 17th and 18th century peasant Dutch. So mo- at that time, it's pretty much normal Dutch, but then Dutch in the mainland, you know, develops and changes over the centuries, and this doesn't as much. So this is basically 18th century peasant Dutch. Okay. Yeah. Th- that's helpful. Thank you. <clears throat> yeah. Sorry, I should have explained that earlier. So, um... It's quite all right, so Fra- my good sir. Francis Rates, Denise's father, yeah, is a lawyer in the British Cape Colony, um, but he eventually moves to open his own law practice in the Orange Free State in 1870. Um, but it didn't really take off, like he didn't do very well, and so he actually returns to the British Cape Colony to practice law there again because business was very good in the Cape Colony. And he even became uh, so well-known, he became a member of the Cape Colony Parliament, 
But why was business suddenly so good, you may wonder? Well, I'll tell you, it's because of all those diamond mines that the British had stolen uh -huh. that we talked about earlier. Because as it turns out, suddenly having diamond mines and people coming to mine diamonds can really give a shot in the arm to the old local economy. Um, you know, you it just brings lots of commercial activity and merchants, and you need lawyers to write things up. And so the gold and the diamonds really changed the economy of Southern Africa, and business was booming and Francis Rates, the lawyer, is doing very, very well. Well, and good it, for him. <laughs> it's funny, though, because after only two months after he entered Parliament in 1873, the president of the Orange Free State, Johannes Brand, offered Rights the position of chairman of the newly formed appellate court of the Orange Free State. So it's a weird relationship between the Dutch living in the British colonies colony on the coast and then these Dutch republics because like you can do things like this where you can just invite a lawyer from the British you know who's Dutch from the British colony to come take a senior government position in one of these Dutch republics huh it's weird because like <clears throat> you know there's even though one part one's you know under British control the other's not they're still sort of viewing themselves as roughly the same people hmm I see uh yeah. I'm trying to follow all that, but the only thing I noticed is that you said rights instead of rates again, and I just want to point that out. Oh, look, I misspelled it there. It looks Spanish now. Oh. Rates. Rates. <laughs> okay, we're going to fix that. Very nice. Rates. Rates. There we go. Francis Rates. Rates. So, yes, anyway, he's just practicing law and in Parliament when he gets this offer to leave the British colony and go to the Orange Free State to become chairman of the appellate court there. Gotcha. And so, although Rates initially refused, he was eventually convinced by the president to take the position. So back he went to the Orange Free State, uh, 30 years old and actually just married to a Norwegian woman named Blanca Thesen. Hmm. Yep. Who had, uh, whose family had emigrated from Norway to the colony a few generations before, or I think one generation before. Hmm. Yep. And so um, this is what Francis was up to when his third son... Denais was born, and he actually had 15 children total between two marriages. God damn. <laughs> his, first, his first wife died, and then he remarried. But uh, yeah, he had 15 total children. And so this is his third son, Denais, born in 1882, which is a time when people in the Orange Free State were very, very wary of the British, since the British had just tried and failed to take over their neighbor, the Transvaal Republic. Hmm. So this is literally right after that war ends. Gotcha. And so people in the Free State are very suspicious of the British, with good reason. Of course. <laughs> so yeah, Francis's career is going great, though. You know, he, he actually ends up becoming president of the Orange Free State in 1889. So he gets invited in to become a judge and then ends up becoming president. Wow. Yeah. And so uh, riding the wave of anti-British Boer nationalism that had pretty understandably arisen, uh, he... Yeah, became president. He really was on the pro-Boer, anti-British platform was kind of his thing. And immediately after he was inaugurated, Rates contacted the government of the Transvaal Republic uh, with the aim of establishing new and closer political ties between the two. Because he's like, you know, you're technically part of the British Empire. We're not. But, you know, you are, for all intents and purposes, independent. And the British are probably going to try to take both of us out at some point. So we should be very close allies. Yeah, I mean, that makes that does make sense. I mean, because the looming threat of the British Empire is 
you know, visible <clears throat> everywhere around the world. I mean, it's and it has been for hundreds of years. It's like the wise thing to do is to make sure that we're all like at least shaking hands before they try and do something, you know, a little bit uh, suspicious, you might say. Exactly. So that's sort of his major political sort of thing is get ready for when the British come. And he's very, very popular. Um, and a few months before the pres the next presidential election in 1893, Rates announced that he would only seek re-election on the condition that he be allowed three months leave between presidential terms to go to Europe with his family, which included the 12-year-old at this place at this point, Denise. And on November 22nd of 1893, he was reelected on a landslide on this, con you know, with this condition that he got to take three months off between presidential terms. That's pretty badass, though. <laughs> yep. Yep. But this uh, this trip to Europe was more than just a family holiday in. He actually went to Britain and rates made very strong public statements defending the Republican system of government of these little Boer republics and opposing British intervention. Um, so he, he decided to basically go to Britain and tell them to fuck off. <laughs> Literally going to Britain, like, standing before Parliament and all the, all the wealthy merchants of the city of London and going, please just fuck off. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And so after his return, he was, you know, ready to take up his second presidential term. But unfortunately, very quickly, he fell ill and very, very ill, and actually had to resign the presidency the next year in 1885. Because um, he was, yeah, he was uh, ill for a long time. And so after his recovery, he was asked by the neighboring Transvaal Republic to come be their chief justice in their Supreme Court, which he accepted and moved with his family next door. So he is, he's now on his third, third country he's been a government official in. Well, <laughs> gotta say, that's, you gotta be a pretty popular guy. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And within a few years, uh, Francis Rates actually found himself appointed as the state secretary, which is the second highest official of the Transvaal Republic. So, yeah, this guy really got around. Yeah, no He's been shit. the president of one country and the second in command of another country. I mean, that's more than I've done. And, you know, I've been the president. So there you go. <laughs> yep. Yep. So initially, he was actually pretty well liked by the British because he was a very good diplomat and like he knew how to follow diplomatic, you know, protocols and be polite and stuff. And, you know, like he'd gone to Britain and met people. So initially, like the British were like, this guy's probably OK, even though he doesn't like us. But their attitude changed pretty quickly when they realized that Rates was going to try to get actual Transvaal independence not the sort of mostly independent, but actually still part of the British Empire status that they had gotten after the First Boer War. Oh. So once it's clear that he's going to try to get real independence, the British get very suspicious very quickly. Yeah, can't have that. Mm-hmm. Mm so what are they going to do? Oh. Well, as it happens, gold had been discovered in 1886 <laughs> in the Rand area of the Transvaal funnily enough, oh. and prospectors uh, who were called Whitlanders by the Boers, many of whom, most of whom were British, had flocked to the area. And so wanting to get the, their hands on more stuff as ever, the British saw these prospectors as the perfect way in because there would already be a large group in the Transvaal with no 
attachment or loyalty to its government or to the Boers. Ah, so the and British so they thought, like... ah, <laughs> this big group of foreign people who are British, who have nothing, you know, they have no connection to the Boers around them. That'll be a great way for us to, you know, somehow take over. Very cute. <laughs> Very cute. Yes, classic British yeah. behavior. And so in, uh, in 1895, Cecil Rhodes, the prime minister of the British Cape Colony, with his business associate or commercial colleague, Alfred Bate, formed the De Beers Mining Corporation, which, interestingly enough, still has a monopoly on diamonds to this day. What? How, They're still how around. Dare, and they how still dare have you? How dare you, they, George? <laughs> they still have a monopoly on diamonds. Uh, strange. Anyway. Um, so they formed this company, and um, they really want to get in on this uh, this action with the gold and with all these other diamond deposits, which are outside of the uh, the areas you know they control. So he did what any capitalist would do, and he planned a spontaneous uprising. Ah, great, excellent. Yes, yes, the old tra- the old Transvaal Spring. Oh, um, I'm out of mead, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> Transvaal so, and this- Spring. This is great. This is great. So the basic plan was that they were going to arrange for there to be a spontaneous uprising in Johannesburg among the Whitlanders, these British prospectors, who would revolt and hopefully seize the Boer armory and the Boer capital of Pretoria before anyone knew what was happening. And uh, the, uh, the man who was supposed to sort of manage everything on the ground was Sir Leander Jameson, oh. who was waiting right on the border of the Transvaal with a small group of soldiers from Rhodes's own British South Africa company, because Rhodes controls the British South Africa company, in addition to the De Beers Mining Company. Oh. And so he has like 600 troops, I think, from the British South Africa company, and they're going to be waiting on the border. And then when there's word of this spontaneous uprising, they'll just dash across the border to Johannesburg to restore order and with control of Johannesburg, they would also control the newly discovered gold fields, which were nearby. How clever. Yeah, I know. <laughs> those, those spontaneous uprisings, man. Very. You got pl- to plan them well in advance. Oh, yeah, um, they have to be planned. If They're not spontaneous if they're not planned. <laughs> yeah, it might. If you don't plan it right, it might not be spontaneous. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, um... The people in Johannesburg who were supposed to start the uprising couldn't agree with each other about what form of government they should have in Johannesburg after the uprising. So they messaged Jameson and told him to wait until they figured out what they wanted to do after the uprising. Well, Leander Jameson didn't want to wait and figured if he just started the invasion, then they would have no choice but to start the uprising. Oh, okay. Fair enough. So he sends a telegram to Rhodes saying that he was doing it live, <laughs> and then he cut the telegraph lines so he couldn't get a reply. Ugh. He also intended to cut the lines to Cape Town, or, um, he, you know, he cut the ones to Cape Town. He had intended to cut the lines that went to Praetoria, which is the Boer capital in the Transvaal, but unfortunately, they accidentally cut down a metal fence instead. What? They thought it, Yeah, they got mixed up between, like, a wire fence and the telegraph lines, and so they took out the fence, not the telegraph lines. Now, hold on, real quick. J- just, to, just to add something here to the fire. So, here's something I know about telegraph lines. They do, fairly often, run along fences in these early days. Mm-hmm, um, yep. So, it... it 
it's possible that they thought, oh yeah, they're not just complete idiots. It's possible they thought, yeah, I mean okay. they're both and they're both made of wire. Yeah, yeah, but it's. <laughs> But, like, literally, telegraph lines ran along fence lines. So they probably they could have also just cut down the wrong one. The wrong fence, know. yeah. Yeah. I but just want to throw case, that out there. Yeah. All they cut down was a fence. So as a result, the government of the Transvaal knew that he was there from the moment his invasion started, pretty much, since they were able to communicate. And his force was intercepted, defeated in battle, and captured before they ever made it to Johannesburg, where, of course, no uprising had happened since the Whitlanders were still arguing about what they were going to do after the uprising. Mm, the spontaneity just, you know, when you lose that in a relationship, there's just... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it just gets stagnant. <laughs> so the, uh, the Boer government of the Transvaal handed the men they'd captured over to the British for trial and the British prisoners were returned to London. But they were sort of heroes in the British press. Jameson, especially, was just absolutely lionized by London society and treated as a hero of the British Empire and given a very, very light prison sentence for invading another country. Of course. Because, you know, the British are all about this kind of crap. Right. Uh, the British government was kind of pissed how it all turned out, though, since the whole thing was a massive embarrassment. <laughs> For them that, you know, people fairly high up had been involved and or, you know, cognizant of what was going on. It's a little bit so of a, it, it's a little mustard on the cummerbund, you know? <laughs> yeah, it looks bad. Um, and so this, this whole thing brought Anglo-Boer relations to sort of their all-time low when they're not actually at war. And it got worse because there's something called the Kruger Telegram, which is the German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm, um, sent a telegram <laughs> to Paul Kruger and congratulated him on defeating the Raiders, and its wording implied that Germany was willing to recognize and maybe support the Boer Republic. And now, the British now, just... Sorry. Yeah. I gotta ask, this Kaiser Wilhelm, is this first or second? Second. Second. Okay. And second. How? In what other way was Kaiser Wilhelm II significant? Well, he was the emperor during World War One. Okay, good. I just wanted to make that yep. clear. <laughs> yep. Yep. So, um... The British just went just absolute batshit over this and just you know, the anti-German and anti-Boer sentiment in the British newspapers was just ridiculous um, because the British hate everyone who's not, you know, them evil and <laughs> ugly like them. Um, <laughs> I want to make it clear. <laughs> no, I don't even have to do that. Everybody and so anyways, so they're just really, you know, they're really pissed off about this. And the Transvaal begins importing large quantities of weapons, mostly from the Germans. And um, the Transvaal and the Orange Free State do finally sign an alliance for mutual defense in 1897. At, at which point in the Transvaal, Kruger, who's the president, good old Francis Reitz, who's the state secretary, and the attorney general, Jan Smuts, decide that they need to take a really, like, proactive, offensive attitude towards any sort of British incursions. Um, they can't just sort of, like, sit back and take it, or the British are just going to slowly, you know, take everything like they've tried to do in the past, that if the British try to fuck with them, they need to just draw a hard line and be like, no, we're not, not putting up with anything. Yeah, I want to make a weird analogy here, though. Um, so you know how uh, in Hell Britannia it says Britannia rules the waves? Or the world? More like Britannia waves the rules. Oh, yeah, that too. But <laughs> it's interesting because one of the strategies that the British have, um, or had, I would say, throughout the uh, colonial history is literally acting like waves. 
um, just trying to wear people down, like with one wave after another. It's like, oh, this will do it. No, this will do it. This time it's sure to break. This time it's sure to break. That's what this feels like, right? It's like the British are just constantly like, well, we'll just fuck with them over the diamonds. Well, now let's fuck with them over the gold. And and now let's... Uh, and it, you get to a point where people like Kruger, Rates, and, and, and Smoots or whatever are sort of like recognizing that this is a pattern. And in the future, we, we can't just let these waves... Yeah, because remember, we are like 500 miles in from Cape Town, and this all expanded to this point because first the Dutch East India Company and then the British literally just little by little encroached. Yeah. Like, up, oh, we're just gonna establish control over this little settlement and then the next year over this one and just, you know, little by little until they had, you know, 500 miles under control. Yep. It's just, it again, it's, it's about that sort of... If nothing else, the British are very persistent. Or I should say the, the British government, but whatever. Yep. Yep. So... Yeah, after the Jameson raid and its failure, like, it was clear to everyone that things were gonna, you know, light up pretty soon. Um, Jan Smuts, that attorney general, wrote about the raid, uh, and I cannot do an Afrikaans accent, so I'm not gonna try, but, uh, the Jameson raid was the real declaration of war, and that is so, in spite of the four years of truce that followed, the aggressors consolidated their alliance the defenders, on the other hand, silently and grimly prepared for the inevitable. Oof. So he, you know, he knows. He knows what's coming. He knows. Because the British absolutely still want to cement control over the Transvaal and the Orange Free State, and they knew that the Wheatlanders were going to be their ticket, this big group of mostly British foreigners there. And as tensions escalated, it got very, you know, there were all sorts of political maneuvering and negotiations between the uh, Boer Republics and the British... It's, it's, it's all just sort of proxy them trying to retain their independence versus the British trying to take them over, but sort of through all these individual political questions. So, like, they're negotiating about the rights of Wheatlanders within the South African Republic, you know, trade rights, control of the gold mining industry, you know, the relationship between Britain and the Orange Free State, since the Transwall is technically part of the empire, and the Britain still is trying to also play their uh, their con where they get them to form a federation under British control. So it's kind of like all these separate things that all actually are about the same thing, which is that Britain wants to take them over. As it usually is. Yep. Mm. Yep, yep, yep. And so in, uh, in September of 1899, as British troops formed up on the borders, the British colonial secretary, Joseph Chamberlain, um demanded, actually, Joseph Chamberlain... There you go. (laughs) ...demanded full voting rights and representation for the Wheatlanders residing in the Transvaal, which would instantly hand over a huge part of the government to Britain. Britain's like, all these British people who have showed up to mine gold, you need to give them all equal voting rights with yourselves. Well, yeah. Right? Yep. (laughs) And um, so, obviously, you know, that would instantly take away control of the government from the Boers for the most part. If suddenly you had this massive voting block of tens of thousands of of these, you know, alien miners who've come in. Sure. So Kruger, the president of the Transvaal, which in case you read about this, the Transvaal is also called the South African Republic sometimes. The British usually refer to it as the South African Republic. The Boers themselves refer to it as either 
And it goes back and forth, but they're the same thing. Um, sure. Just thought, I forgot, I was going to mention that earlier, but forgot. So, Paul Kruger refuses to do this because he knows that, well, that's the end of the Boer government. And he issues an ultimatum on the 9th of October, giving the gov- British government 48 hours to withdraw all their troops from the borders because the British have formed up troops all along the borders when they make this demand and to withdraw their demands about voting rights. If they um, do not withdraw their troops, Kruger's ultimatum continues, the Boers would understand it to be a tacit confirmation that a state of war existed between them. Oh, God. All right. Yep, and so what do you think happens? The British refuse, and so the governments of the Transvaal and the Orange Free State formally announce that they are at war with the British Empire. So it's at this point that the um, story of Denise Rates really begins. So remember, that's the son of State Secretary Francis Rates, second most important official in the Transvaal Republic. And he's just, Denise is just a 17-year-old boy at this point, and he is in Pretoria, the capital, with his father when this, the Second Boer War, formally begins. And so young Denise immediately tries to enlist in the Boer army, but he was turned away because of his age, because he's only 17. But since his father was state secretary, uh, Denise had an opportunity to personally appeal to the president of the Transvaal Republic, Paul Kruger. So the next time his father was in a meeting with the president, Denise followed him in and personally asked the president to allow him into the military. Wow. Can can you imagine, like, a, a politician's son... Like, requesting to serve, like, as opposed to, like, the politician, like, fighting on behalf of their own child to, to help them dodge the draft? Yeah, Can you imagine? Exactly. Amazing. Exactly. So, um, Paul Kruger was very impressed by the young man's resolve, and so he actually personally walked him down the hall to the office of General Pete Joubert, who is the uh, commander of the forces currently of the Transvaal, and we've obviously run into him in the past back in the first Boer War. Right. Um, and he's over in the tra- yeah, in the Transvaal. And um, he accepts him into the uh, the military right then and there, and in the office he hands the young Denise a German Mauser rifle and a bandolier of ammunition, and told him how he can sneak into the military underage. Holy f- <laughs> Because, you know, he didn't want to go through the... (laughs) Yeah, like, right there in the office of the presidential, you know, government complex. But he didn't want to, like, you know, go through the process of, like, changing the rules or something to, you know, let someone in who's too young. So he just gives him a gun and tells him how he can sneak in. (laughs) That's amazing. So on, uh, on General Joubert's instruction... Denise and one of his brothers find a train there in Pretoria that was embarking soldiers bound for the front, and they find a window that nobody's watching, and they toss their bags through and then scramble into the train through the window themselves. And that is where we are going to leave part one, um, since it's really here that sort of Denise's story um, picks up now that we've gotten the whole situation. Wow. Dude, an entire episode of context. I I'm so happy right now. <laughs> it was it was good context. Oh yeah, it's going this is the story that's going to pay off from this. Holy shit. I'm feeling very good about this. Uh Yeah, no, I I think this is going to be a good one. Oh yeah. Well done. Uh I can't wait to get to part 2. Um So with that, I think uh I think uh let's just leave it like that and head to the surface. 
Let's do it. So, Aaron, if you were going to fight against British oppression, which continent would you want to do it on? Since you can choose pretty much any continent and you could do it there. And why would you choose that continent? Uh, uh, God, I don't know. Probably just straight up America. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, apparently that's a valid the, choice. Apparently they didn't learn the first time. <laughs> How many times do we have to teach you this lesson, old man? <laughs> old man, indeed. How many times do we have to teach you this lesson, young man? Yeah. Now, what about you? Hmm. Probably gonna have to go with Europe, cause uh, the Ir the Ireland stuff. I think I've got to rep rep Ireland there. Um, you know, shocky our law and all that. Right. Massive respect. Massive respect. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. But you bet, as we said, you can choose pretty much anywhere in the world, and at some point or another, you could have fought British oppression there. Yeah. Well. Um. Yeah, I don't know, it's one of those things where it's like, when you really dig into this stuff, it's like the power structure never really changed, but the name kept changing. Which is probably the weirdest part of this whole story. But I think that's enough. I think it's time to bring the show to an end for today. If you hate us, you're probably still British, so consider funding the show uh, with all your all your um, gold bricks and that, and that. And your diamonds. And your diamonds. You can consider funding the show by becoming a patron on patreon.com. Um, patreon is our platform for supporting generally what we do. If you just want to send us like a little tip, like say, hey, good job, or you want to recommend something, throw us a tip on Venmo, and our handle is at WTADP. Our cover art was created by Ian Patterson of Ian Patterson Illustration, and you can do more of his wonderfully whimsical work at www.ipattersonillustration.com. And with all that being said, we'll close out and let the bullers play you out. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> what happened?